0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on December 30th, 2020. I'm really, really excited to be talking with... Truly one of my favorite conversation partners in the whole world, my colleague and friend, Dr. Micha Goodman in Israel. Some of you have studied with the Hartman Institute know that one of the highlights of Hartman summer every year, at least for me, is on Shabbat afternoon during the Lay Leader program, getting to do a one-on-one conversation with Micha, I've learned enormous amount from those conversations about Israeli society, about American Jews, about Israel diaspora, about technology, all of which we'll talk about today. And what's delightful about those conversations, unlike perhaps this one, is that since they take place on Shabbat, we don't record them. And so they only live on in our memory. But this one we're gonna record and is a podcast for the world. And there's so many things to talk about with Micha today, but the prompt is the recent release of Micha's newest book in English. Uh, The book is called The Wondering Jew. Israel and the Search for Jewish Identity, out from Yale University Press. It was out a while back earlier in Hebrew and now is actually available to the American audience. First of all, Micha, thanks so much for taking a little time to talk on the show today.
1: Thank you, Yehuda.
0: So look, I don't love when people do book talk events and you actually summarize the whole book because then it tells people they don't have to read it. So I want people to go out and read and buy the book. But I'll start with like a lighter question, which is, just a little bit about you and why this book. You know, in your trajectory as an intellectual, you did three big books on Jewish thought that were kind of great books projects. You did a book on Deuteronomy. You did a book on Maimonides. You did a book on Halevi. I'm sorry if I got those out of order. And then you shifted your focus with the last two books, one to The Politics of Israeli Society with Catch 67, and then the second to this story of Israeli Jewish identity today. And they are very much companion books. We'll talk about that more. But Tell me what's going on with that story for you, the journey from great books to this in terms of your own field division of what's interesting to you.
1: Yes. So I thought that what my role is in life is to write books about books. So I wrote a book about Moren Nebuchim, The guy for the Perplexed. Actually, I thought that would be the only book I ever read. But for some reason, people were actually reading my book about Moren Buchim. And I thought that doesn't tell the entire story because The Guide for the Perplexed is the best of Judaism. But it's only a part of Judaism. And the best way, I think, to tell the side of a different Judaism, which is also the best of Judaism, but less rational, more mystical, is another great book called the Kuzari. So I wrote a book about the Kuzari. And then I was on the roll, and I love the Tanakh. I love the Bible, and I thought the greatest window into the philosophy of the Bible is Deuteronomy. I think it's the greatest introduction to biblical philosophy. So I wrote a book about the Tanakh through a book about Deuteronomy. And then I was thinking about, okay, so I wrote three books about great books, and what's my next project? And here's what happened Yehuda. After I gained already confidence, I decided to stop hiding behind books about books and start to write my book about Israeliness, which is probably the thing I care about the most trying to understand Israeliness, trying to be in a role where I can help heal Israeliness. And I realized that the greatest division in Israel is between the secular, religious, national, universal, that divide. And I started writing that book a month after the 2014 operation in Gaza. So that was the summer of 2014. I started writing that book. And then while I was writing this book about the secular religious divide in Israel, I realized you have to write a chapter about the right-left divide because you can't understand the secular religious divide without understanding the right-left divide. And then that chapter grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and it turned into a book of its own. So, Kath 67 was a branch of The Wandering Jew. It turned into a book of its own, and my editor, Shmuel Rosner, had this great idea, let's just say this was the first book, and it will come out 50 years of the six-day war. So that book was out, and then I went back to write what was called Chazara B'litzhuva, it's a pun in Hebrew, and now it's out in English. But this was actually these two books we're supposed to be both of them. My fourth book, after I wrote books about books, to write a great book about Israeliness and the issues are dividing Israelis, and it's split into two books. So actually The Wandering Jew was supposed to be the first book, but then an accident happened. Cat sixty seven was born, and now it's the second book.
0: Got it. So when someone ultimately does a source critical analysis of your publishing history, they'll be able to identify the Ur source of Catch 67 as part of The Wondering Jew Before It Got Extricated. I think we did a good job hiding the traces. <laughs> is it crazy to say though, in some ways, your first three books, basically in some ways translating some of the greatest books and greatest ideas of Jewish intellectual history into an Israeli idiom? Because you were writing more for Israelis than for your English speaking audience. That's not to disrespect your English speaking audience, but that's where your heart is. And I want to talk about that at some point today. In some ways, those books are almost like a primary source text of this book in the sense of how do I give Israelis access to Murad Evochim, to the Guide to the Perplexed, how do I induct them into a conversation about universalism, particularism, which is not a new question. It's actually an old Maimonides Kuzari question. So in some ways, it felt like reading this book was almost helping to explain to your readers over the last 10 years, this is why I wanted you to read Maimonides. Does that make sense? This makes a lot
1: of sense. This is what I got from a lot of readers in Israel. They read Chazarab Lituva, the Hebrew version of The Wandering Jew. And I spoke there about their sources of secular identity, like the Founding Fathers of secular identity. They thought that the deepest secular identity is a kind of secularism that is inspired by Jewish tradition. And it's connected intimately to Jewish tradition, but it's not controlled by Jewish tradition. Connected to our past, but not controlled by our past. And many readers, many secular readers, after they read this book and they said, oh, we want to be that kind of secular Israelis that are connected to their past without being controlled by the past, where can we start? And many of them started with They started with going back. So this wasn't planned, but my books about Deuteronomy, the Kuzari and Moreh Buchim were there for readers that finished this book. They realized they want to connect to Judaism and stay secular and be liberated from Judaism. And the way to connect was to start reading the ideas of Maimonides, the ideas of HaLevi. I got this all over the place. And this wasn't planned. I didn't say I'll write these three books. And then I'll get a lot of readers through these books, through this fourth book. But that was a great unintended result of the wandering Jew in Hebrew.
0: And in effect, by doing so, you're also telling secular Israelis that the people who they viewed as their icons, whether it's Bialik or Achadam or whoever else, those people, of course, were reading Maimonides also. So even to be a learned reader of the Jewish secular tradition is to be knowledgeable of these pieces. It reminds me, Micha. I'd love to understand a little bit, what do you think has driven the whole economy of ideas, the return to Jewish tradition in Israeli society? It reminds me of our mutual friend, Shai Zarchi, his parable on this is a people wandering through the wilderness accumulates a whole bunch of stuff along the way, cherished possessions, and when they arrive at the place they need to get to, it turns out it's at the bottom of a hill. They have to climb to the top of the hill, so they leave their cherished possessions at the bottom of the hill until they get to the top of the hill and they build out their home, After a few decades of dealing with actually building the home, they start to miss their stuff, their carpets, their jewelry, all the things that they left at the bottom of the hill, and he goes back down. So Zarchi says, who's a secular teacher, that's basically what's happened. We built a home, and we missed our cherished possessions. I love that image. I wonder what else happened over the last 20, 30 years that made this search for Jewish identity that you've been such a major leader of in Israeli society? What made it come alive? Is it a vacuum created by politics? What else is going on that makes this quest so uh, poignant?
1: Yehuda, it's a very important question. I want to answer it. But beforehand, it assumes that all our listeners know that this is happening in Israel. So let's just first say that out loud, Okay. There's something very big happening in Israel that maybe no one told you about, that some of you don't know about. And that is that there is a new generation of Israelis, most of them secular Israelis, they're searching in a very serious way for Jewish identity. They're connecting to Jewish sources, and it's not a Chazarat B'Tjuvat movement. It's not secular Israelis becoming religious Israelis. It's Israelis trying to become more Jewish. And my book is about how can you explain that philosophically? And Yehuda's question is, how can we explain that sociologically, emotionally, psychologically? What's going on here? But this is something big and promising that's happening in Israel. So first of all, my theory is, and I love, I I never heard Shenzah's parable, and I think it's really beautiful and really powerful. For me, that parable is a combination of two other parables. One is of Theodol Hetzel, and the other is of Amosel's. So, Theodore Hilton describes in in his great utopia, how he imagines the future of the Jewish state, And he imagines these two people wandering around Israel and seeing an amazing, amazing state of the Jews' built, And they ask one person, how did you do this? How are you so successful? And he said, it was easy. We weren't carrying on our backs the weight of tradition. So, this reminds me, I have a brother, and he is a marathon runner. Like, I'm talking real marathon runner. And I remember there were a few years after he finished the military where he was running with a bag filled with weights. And he told me that many of his friends do the same. And he explained to me, when you run with weights on your back, when you get to the real thing, to a marathon for a race, you take the bag off and you feel like you could fly. You're liberated from all the weight. And that's how I think Herzl imagined the power of secularism. Where for thousands of years, we we're carrying on our backs the weight of tradition. And finally, we took the bag off our backs and we can fly. So that's one fantasy. And that's one part of Shai Zahi's parable, right? You take it off and now you're light and you can build and you can do things. And once, And that was the fantasy of secularism where in order to build the country, in order to liberate the energetic and creative and productive forces of the Jewish people, we have to throw the bag filled with weights of tradition and rabbis and halacha and books. So throw the books away, throw tradition away, throw all that weight away and be light and start flying. So that's one image. But Amos also has a different image. And it's the image which I think Shai Zachi is playing with. It's the image of being an inheritor. And this is how Amos always plays with it. he says like this: "Imagine you had a complicated relationship with your grandfather and your grandmother. You loved them, but they were threatening, and you had a complicated relationship with them. Then they die, and everything they owned, you're inheriting. So what do you do? So let's say there's one person that is so connected to his grandparents, because there is precious, sweet grandparents. He can't give anything up. So he or she, they just take everything that their grandparents owned. All the chairs, all the stools, the lamp, everything. Just all their junk, everything goes into their house. How will a person's house look like if he puts all the junk of his grandparents in? It'll probably be messy and it won't be their house. It won't have their own feeling and they won't have much room, right? Imagine someone else you he here. This is a person, he had issues with his grandparents. So he decided he's not taking anything they owned. Nothing that they owned will enter my house. That was their statement. So imagine that kind of a person. So that means because they don't want anything that their grandparents owned, they're not gonna enjoy the jewelry and the treasures and things that are very valuable. So also says, Israelis lost the art of inheritance the art of cultural inheritance. On the one hand, we have the Dati'im. Everything the Jews have ever created is going to be inside our house. It's gonna be a part of our life, which means we have no room for itself. And the angry mean that because they have a problem with rabbis and legislation, and all those issues, everything is outside of our house, including wisdom and treasures and everything. And I think Amosul is like, okay, now let's learn the art of inheritance. How do we put into our house, our Israeli modern house, the best of our tradition? And we also have to know what not to keep. Let's not be automatic, not automatic rejection, but not automatic adoption. Now, that movement from angry secularism, you throw everything out, and smart secularism. Let's start identifying the treasures of our past, of our tradition, and make them part of our life, and understanding that by doing that, we're not less secular, we are more secular, because being secular in the Israeli understanding is being liberated, being free, and it's an expansion of liberty. Instead of only being liberated from my tradition, I'm also liberated to adopt things from my tradition.
0: The English word for this is actually quite powerful because it has the same double-edged connotation, which is baggage. Right. Baggage can just mean, you know, the stuff you carry with you, but can also mean baggage. It's like the stuff that weighs you down and it's heavy And until you figure out what's the right calculus between the baggage of the stuff you have to carry and the baggage that you actually want to take with you and bring with you can't get there. And actually, once I was teaching at Brandeis students who were preparing to teach in Jewish day schools, and I was supposed to teach them a kind of introduction to Talmud. They weren't supposed to be Judaic studies teachers, but they had to understand culturally the meaning of Talmud, rabbinic Judaism, etc. And I remember for a few sessions of this class, there was a person in the room who just was fighting me. You know, you're a teacher too. was fighting, but unrelated to the text. Couldn't get into it, didn't like it, was angry. And then finally had this outburst. And basically, it just went on for about a 15-minute monologue about what ultimately was an abusive teacher of Talmud, who she once had. And as a result, Talmud was baggage. <laughs> and then we spent the next two hours. It was one of the greatest teaching experience I ever had. And I said, okay, guys, let's get everybody's baggage on the table. What's your baggage with Talmud, with rabbinic Judaism, with religious Judaism? We talked for two hours. It was therapeutic. And then we had the most magnificent class for the rest of the semester. And there's something of like a metaphor for the Jewish people here, post-enlightenment, of we had to deal with like 200 years of shedding all the baggage of this stuff. And now maybe we have to figure out psychologically what's our relationship with all of this stuff because it's actually quite beautiful. And it's not just decoration, it's not just jewelry. It's actually the stuff that gives your life meaning, that makes you feel tethered, that makes you connected to a bigger story.
1: Exactly. First of all, I love the pun. We have our baggage where we put all our things, which we cherish in baggage, and it's also baggage. And we have to figure it out. And yes, we've been there with that student that is angry and they don't even know why they are so angry. In my book, I make a distinction between two types of secularism. There's Echad Am secularism and there's Berdichevsky secularism. And Berdichevsky secularism is that angry student in Brandeis, where the only way to liberate the Jew and to create a new, healthy, fearless Jew is to take tradition and throw it out the window. And the Am said, no, the only way to create a new Jew, they have a fantasy of healing the personality of Jews. And the only way to do that is not through ending your relationship with Judaism, but through healing our relationship with Judaism. And obviously, I think Israel is now moving from Belichefsky to Echadah, from ending our relationship with our tradition to start to heal our relationship with tradition. And what does that mean? I think healing, secular people healing the relationship with tradition, is taking tradition, stripping it from authority, from power and then seeing it for what it is now in my book i tell a story and i don't know if this story resonates with americans but let me try to share with you a way i experience it when i was in the military in basic training i had a very very tough commander and i was the worst kind of soldier because you know me you that i always lose things i forget where things are now you can kind of get through life with losing things but not in the military because when you lose something, you get in real trouble. I used to meet, I mean, Faked Nachshon, Commander Nachshon at night, when everybody went to sleep. And I used to run up and down this hill carrying all the things I lost that day, right? <laughs> carrying up and down, up and down. And I remember the only way I could actually do this, perform in the right timing, was to cheat. And then he caught me cheating, and he took me to a mishpat, to like a military courtroom, and I was supposed to like, so is, I have all this trauma from this commander. This guy was like the symbol of military authority to me, and I was afraid of him. And 10 years later, 12 years later, I'm giving a class in Hebrew University about Rambam. And when I finish the class, I'm walking down the halls of Hebrew University and talking to my students about Rambam and Aristotle, and I see him. Now, my heart starts, you know, I said, Shalom, Shalom, I see him, and I walk away. And while I'm walking away, I'm thinking to myself, Micha, he's not your commander anymore. There's nothing he can do to you. He's not going to tell you, go running now. But here's the thing. When I saw him, I saw his authority. So Berdychewski argues, Judaism carried authority for so many years. Every time we'll see Judaism, we'll see authority. The only way to liberate ourselves from the authority of tradition is to liberate ourselves from tradition. But Chahadam said, no, we could take tradition, strip it from its authority and heal our relationship with tradition. In the book, I tell how 20 years later, I met Nachshon again. It was in Shukmachana Yehuda, and we met, and suddenly I see him, and like, my heart's not beating. Like, it's just a guy. Nachshon
0: yanim. We sat in a coffee place. He's such a cool guy. We had a great laugh. It didn't matter if you lost anything on the way to the shook. He <laughs> <You> didn't care. <laughs> That's
1: right. He's not angry at me. And I realized, now I'm seeing Nachshon without the authorities. So I realized it took me. 20 years to finish the army. Now I'm done with the army. So my metaphor is like this. Secularism, first generation, every time it's our religion, it's all the commander, it's our authority. Today, Yehuda, were three, four generations into secularism. Maybe secularism is so mature today in Israel that when it sees Judaism, it could see something exciting, something inspiring, something interesting. It doesn't see them the fakir anymore. So I think, and this is what I'm trying to explain to Israelis. Secular Israelis being connected to Judaism, it doesn't mean that their secularism is weak. It means that it's strong and it's mature. It's mature enough to reconnect to tradition without it echoing its authority.
0: Shalom. My name is Omri Shasha, and I want to invite you to join me on an exciting intellectual journey together with faculty from the Shalom Hartman Institute, in our new Hebrew-language podcast, Esket Ushma. In our first season, we're focusing on the long history of cultural clashes between Judaism and its surroundings, from the Bible until today, looking at how it's interacted with everyone from Canaanites to Christianity and Islam, discussing thinkers like Maimonides, Theodore Herzl, and the Chada Am. You can find the show on Spotify and other podcast platforms by searching for Hesket Ushma in Hebrew or by going to our Hebrew website. Micha, there's one piece about this book that I really struggled with. It won't surprise you, but it's your chapter called Non-Diasporic Judaism. So here's what I struggled with, which is on all the ideas of your book as a diaspora Jew, as very much an American Jew in this American idiom, All of your ideas about Judaism made sense to me as true for the state of Israel and Israeli Jews and true for diaspora Jews also. Because you're making a much larger post-enlightenment argument than just about Zionism. You're arguing this reconciliation between a mature secularism that doesn't see its job as shattering religion and a mature religion that understands that it can offer, as you say about religious Zionism, it offers tools for religious modernization that in some ways secularism can't do. By living in the framework of religion and engaging with the world, it's doing something that secularism can't do. So I felt very connected to this story. I felt I identified with this. And yet I couldn't figure out whether there's actually a place for diaspora Jews in this project or whether this is only something that could be coherent in Israel. And if it's okay with you, I'll read just the two sentences on this, where you said on page 113, thanks to Zionism, Jews can begin to carefully peel away from their Judaism the mechanisms that have burdened and beleaguered it. In Israel, Jews can worry less about how to preserve Judaism and wonder more about what its purpose should be. If the diaspora burdened Judaism, Zionism might be a way to unburden it. So I guess you can see why I struggle with this. Is it have to be in the framework of Zionism? There was some parody of diaspora here. Is it possible that there's some version of an American Jewish story which is parallel? Or do you believe, and that's okay for to say it to an American audience, no, guys, this is our project. And what you're doing is holding on to a version of a story that is just different.
1: Yes. So this is a very good question. I'm not really sure what the answer is. Because in this book, my hope was that American Jews will read this book, and find their Judaism for them also. But it also serves a different purpose for American Jews to understand what's powerful about Israeli Judaism today. When many of us are so disenchanted from Israeli politics, we should know that while Israeli politics is dysfunctional and we're just entering our fourth elections in two years, there's something very, very powerful culturally and spiritually going on in Israel. And my book tries to explain the philosophy behind this cultural renaissance in Israel. But yes, there was a chapter I wrote in Hebrew, which is a critique of the Galut. And I not only did I keep it in for English, I even expanded it in English, hoping to trigger a conversation. And it's a sad conversation. So I hope, by the way, the result of the conversation is that I'm wrong. But here's the argument, which I hope I am wrong. Ultra-Orthodoxy is very serious, very deep, and had a very important prediction. It's the following. That... Modernity is dangerous to Jewish identity and being exposed to modern ideas, to modern values, to modern heroes, it will be like an earthquake. Even very stable buildings collapse and modernity is an earthquake and the building of Judaism might collapse. And the best thing to do if you know an earthquake is coming is just to go somewhere else. And I think ultra-Orthodoxy was a following impulse. It knew an earthquake is coming and we should go somewhere else. So we shouldn't be there mentally, spiritually, identity-wise, when the earthquake happens. So the best way to protect ourselves from the earthquake of modernity is not to be in modernity, is to shut Judaism down and to protect itself from modernity. And by the way, which takes us to a second conclusion of ultra-orthodoxy, the best way to close Judaism so we won't be exposed to modernity is to freeze Judaism, because modernity is about constant change, and the best way to guarantee that we won't modernize Judaism and therefore threaten Judaism is to block change, which creates a paradox. Judaism always changed, and the declaration that Judaism is not going to change is itself change, this is the paradox, and this is all work of Yaakov Kratz, the important historian for the last generation of Hebrew. And here's my problem, I think they're right. This is a problem, Yehuda. I think they were right in the following sense. If we look at the data, and this is something that Achada Am understood before seeing the data, and you see American Judaism today, and I hope you prove me wrong, Yehuda, but it seems like the more your Judaism is frozen and closed, that's the double impulse of Orthodoxy, Close Judaism, freeze Judaism, the more the continuity of your community is guaranteed. And the more it's open and dynamic and changes, the more your continuity is threatened. And I think, unless I'm wrong, I think the numbers here are very clear, which takes me to the following conclusion. In modern times, we have two very bad options. Bad option number one is to distort Judaism and protect it, because I think closing Judaism and freezing Judaism is a distortion of Judaism, but you do that in order to protect Judaism. So there will be no you know, assimilation, so we'll have continuity. So bad option number one is to distort it, but protect it. Bad option number two is not to distort it. Keep it open, embrace change, and then threaten your continuity. So you distort it or protect it, or or create the best treaties which is open and dynamic, but threatened, and you could lose it. Because those are two very bad options. Israel offers a third option. In Israel, because Jewish identity is guaranteed, it's guaranteed. If you live in Israel and stay in Israel, more than 90 percent chances that your grandchildren will see themselves as Jews and raise their children as Jews. In Israel, Judaism is guaranteed, even if you're secular, no matter what you are, what kind of a Jew you are. And that's why in Israel is the only place where we can open Judaism without threatening Judaism. It's the only place we can do that. And that is why Herod and the founding fathers of Zionism thought it's a safe haven from anti-Semitism. Maybe today it's a safe haven for Judaism. And the best of Judaism can flourish in Israel without it being threatened. So that's my argument. I think it's a powerful argument for Israel. It's a sad argument for American Jews. And I hope Yehuda, you prove me wrong.
0: I wanna prove you wrong and I have some thoughts on it. And it has to do with the fact that you're using the term continuity and data in a very specific context, which means not all Jews today will have Jewish grandchildren, which is not the same as are the same dynamic processes of creation and interpretation taking place in American Jewish life, but under different circumstances. But even before we get to that though, Micha, there's another danger you're not accounting for in the state of Israel. And this one I was really troubled by because if the danger, quote unquote, for American Jews is basically disappearance, lack of continuity, by being in an open society, you create the possibility of either American Jews could become obsessed with continuity and therefore closed off to this society or discontinuous. But the other danger in the state of Israel is that religion does something that you don't want it to do, which is that it becomes juxtaposed to the discourse of nationalism and statehood in ways that are also distorting. And you say it at one point in the same chapter, precisely because Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people, its society can afford to highlight the non-national aspects of Judaism. Well, that's great when it does. But the thing that I think many American Jews look with great fear and suspicion about Israel are the ways in which Judaism is actually being interpreted not as non-national, but precisely as hyper-national, expressed in the form of politics, expressed in the form of religion juxtaposed to the state. The very things that diaspora frees you from. is that I don't have to become obsessed with the national and statist elements. So doesn't that temper a little bit? The Israel as is the great laboratory for the Jewish people in the modern age in ways that the diaspora isn't. Isn't that its own danger and fear that Israelis have to negotiate around this?
1: Yes, I think you're right. Zionism is this
0: whole experiment where
1: Jews have power and obtain power. And this is also something power could change us. Power changes us as individuals and power could change us as collective. And power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts completely. And this is all, this is, I read this great book, I forgot who wrote it, it's called The Power Paradox. And it describes the dynamics of how powerful people, their minds change. Power is like heroin, it changes you.
0: Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you know who is the best Torah on this? Of all the people? Who? This is what he says in 1897 at the Zionist Congress. At the same time that he articulates this beautiful vision for secular, cultural, deeply Jewish renewal, he warns that the wrong version of a nation state could actually be the opposite of this because it could create a secular calcification. So here's the thing. So the Torah, this is
1: what my book about Deuteronomy is about. Moshe, right before he enter the land of Israel, he says, you're not only changing your geography, you're changing your politics. It's a massive shift from being a perilous people to powerful people, and power could change you. And the Torah is about how to guide you. This is the Jewish method of how to protect you from the corrupting impact of your own power. And Zionism resurrects that challenge. We have power and power can change us and power corrupts us. And the Torah doesn't say power corrupts, so avoid power. It says, no, we need power because without power, we can't change the world. But the paradox is that that power might change your own world. And the question is, are you Jewish enough? To protect yourselves from your own power. So Ben Gurion said that Israel brings the Tanakh back to life because we're back to the location of the Bible and the language of the Bible. But I think he's mainly right because we're also back to the politics of the Bible where Jews have a collective of power, and suddenly the prophets, their preachings are alive again, because the halacha of the Bible, the guidance on how to deal with power is alive again. And it's only alive because we could screw up. The only way we can become an exemplary society is we can also become a corrupt society. You can only become ethical if you're in a position where you can also become unethical. And that's the situation today. I think it's too close to call. 73 years into this project, but it's possible that power is corrupting the Jewish people. And it's also possible, Yehuda, that the Jewish people can sh- It's possible to have power and to use that power in order to make the world a better place and not to make their own tradition a distorted tradition. Now, as you know, Yehuda, we're not observers of history, we're not observers of Israel, we're street fighters. I think you're with me also here on the streets a bit, and we're here not to guess what will happen with Zionism, we're here to promote, not to predict, but to promote, to change what will happen with Zionism. I think our greatest, greatest question is what will we do with our power? I think we should have power, but our greatest task is what we can do with our power. And your question is the right question. Is religion about making us excited about power or careful about power? And you're right that sometimes in Israel, religion is not making us more careful about the usage of our power. It's actually making us sometimes abuse our own power. You're right. And because we could screw up, Because it could go wrong, that's why this is so interesting, because it could also go right.
0: Yeah, I guess I did take the charge of that chapter, Micha. I took it personally in the sense of not Micha's wrong about this, but I took it as Micha could be right about this. And if he's right about it, there's two options, basically, for diaspora Jews. One is, well, I guess we should pack it in and leave or become Haredi, right? Or... Actually, this is the mandate of what diaspora Jews have to figure out for ourselves, and I'm full in on that. I guess the place where I would love to see greater synergy here is that diaspora doesn't become the antithesis that makes the thesis of Zionism work, that they actually might be projects that could communicate. I think I've told you this story before, but You know, one of the great examples of this phenomenon of the bringing back of religion in Israeli society is the Friday night services on the beach on the port in Tel Aviv take place usually during the summer. I suspect that they've been suspended during the pandemic, but in the summer, 1100, 1200 Israelis come for Kabbalah Shabbat services Friday night on the port of Tel Aviv, and they're not quote unquote religious Jews. Like, they're Israelis. They're going for Kabbalah Shabbat, and then they're going to eat shrimp afterwards somewhere else on the port of Tel Aviv. And it's beautiful. We go there every summer with our family for this tefillah. Fun fact, where did that come from? Ronnie Yeager and a bunch of others went to New York once, and they went looking for American Judaism. And they go to B'nai Jeshur, a congregation on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which has the most incredible music and a Friday night service in the world. And they sit there and they say this is amazing we should do this in israel but you know what we can do in israel that they can't do Epine jesheron we could do this in public (laughs) we could probably get the city of tel aviv to allow us to use the port so then they go and set it up in the port in tel aviv i was there maybe four or five summers ago with a group of rabbis from hartman and i hear them saying to each other this is really great you know we should do this back in america i was like guys it's a new (laughs) it's a diaspora idea but at its best Israelis are looking to American Jews and saying, in what ways are your innovations around religion, spirituality, Jewish culture, really good? And now I wanna find a way to do it in Israel. (laughs) And in what ways are American Jews looking at Israelis? I want American Jews to read this book because I want them to be inspired. That actually the project of religious renewal by secular people, it could be a diaspora project too, but I'm gonna have to find a way to make it work in this idiom. How do we make that conversation really possible?
1: Right. So maybe this is one way to look at it. Rabbi Jonathan Zach's Zechel Tzaddik Yivracha, in one of his books, I think it's Radical Then, Radical Now, makes observation. He says that the Israeli Jews are the chosen people, and the for Jews are the choosing people. And I think this is a way to think about it. In Israel, your Jewish identity is guaranteed. You don't do anything, and it's guaranteed. There's four things in the air in Israel. They're for free, and you don't think about it. First of all, we speak Hebrew. It's a big deal. And two, we live in Israel, it's a big deal. And three, almost guarantee that almost all your best friends are gonna be Jewish. No matter what college you go to. And four, time is Jewish. Like in Israel, the next holidays is stubbishbah. So think about it, like you're in Derech like what's more biblical than being in Derech And you're speaking Hebrew, and the people that you're serving you are everything are all Jews. And there's comic songs in the radio, and you're secular and you hate Judaism. So like, it doesn't matter, you're breathing Judaism, you're inhaling Judaism passively, it's in the air, you're space, time, language, people, it's all Jewish and it's for free. You don't choose it, it chooses you. In the United States, and the diaspora, if you don't really work hard to choose it, you lose it. Because the language is not Hebrew, and most of your friends, many times, the people are not Jewish, and the time, the calendar is not Jewish time. And you're not in Israel, you're... So now you have to make an effort. It's not in the air, you have to make an effort. And in order to make an effort, you have to make community exciting. So you create Bnei Jeshwin and you create great music. Because if you're the choosing people, if you have to choose your Judaism actively, or else you lose it, you have to be now very innovative, creative, and make Judaism exciting. So I think this is the great advantage of being the chosen people, meaning that our identity is imposed on us and chosen for us, is that our identity is guaranteed. The great advantage of being the choosing people is that your identity is not guaranteed. You have to fight for it and therefore it's not trivialized and therefore you have to make it interesting, creative and innovative. And this I think is who the two communities meet where I think it's not a coincidence that the best innovative parts of Judaism in Israel are somehow imported from America because we need to borrow ideas and practices from a Judaism that is fighting to stay alive and its only way to stay alive is to be very creative and innovative because everything that is guaranteed is also trivialized, taken for granted, and you can forget about it. Like imagine everything now we don't take for granted because of coronavirus. So in Israel, In Israel, you could forget that you're Jewish. You're so Jewish that you forget that you're Jewish. And in America, you don't forget that you have to choose to be a Jew every day. So, this is, I think, where we Israelis have a lot to learn from American Judaism. We need diaspora Judaism for Judaism to be alive. You guys need Israeli Judaism for Judaism to stay
0: alive. Okay, two more questions for you, Micha, and then I'll let you go, because I could talk to you all day, but you don't have all day. You know, one of the things that I also appreciated about the book, and, and this is not surprising, is that it's kind of like a Zionist Maimonianism. You're looking for a real deep middle ground between extremes. That's why you've remade secularism and religionism to not be as opposites. There is a complicated secularism, as a complicated religiosity, and you're looking kind of for a harmonized, unified place. Beit Hillel, the House of Hillel becomes a stand-in for that version of those in the dispute who can really disagree with their opponents, but can understand them, can articulate their views. It's interesting because when I was reading this, I was thinking about Catch 67 also, your book about the divides between the right and the left in Israel, and especially the very applied practical suggestions you make in Catch 67, which ultimately you published again in English as Eight Steps to strict the Conflict, where the goal is something of a harmonized middle ground. What was interesting to me about this is, President Rivlin in 2015, when he gives his famous tribes of Israel speech, where he says, there's four major tribes. There's not one dominant Israeli identity anymore. There are four different tribes. Roughly 20 to 30% of Israeli society are quote unquote, secular, a little smaller are religious Zionists. about a quarter are Haredi and about 20% are Arabs. But he doesn't do what you do, which is how do we have one unified identity? What he does instead is, how do we be tribal, but in a more effective way? So what's driving your push towards a unified identity as opposed to a tolerant identity, as opposed to a society that's made up of multitudes that figure out a way to communicate with each other?
1: You know, President Obama's famous speech in 2004 in the DNC, he has a line there where he says, we are not as divided as our politics suggest. We are not as divided as our politics suggest. Now, I don't know if he was right about America. I know that line is a true line about Israel. If you look at Israel from the lens of politics, you see a very polarized country where you must assume that Israelis hate each other and they can't agree over anything. When you look into Israeliness, you realize most Israelis agree on most issues. So while I think, and I can I don't want to do this like the Israel versus America game again, we just lose one time. I think that in America, American politics is polarized because America is polarized. And in Israel, Israeli politics are polarized, but Israel is not polarized. So in Israel, politics doesn't reflect this society like it does in America. It actually masks the fact that society is not that polarized. And it's not polarized on these two massive issues, right versus left versus verse, secular verse, religious. And that's because most Israelis love Judaism and they hate the Rabbanut. <laughs> they don't like the rabbinate. So Israelis don't like religious establishment, but they like Judaism. And I'm saying Israelis across the board love Judaism and across the board, they can't stand the Jewish establishment. So how do you turn those two impulses into a consensus, into action, into inspiration when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict Almost all Jewish Israelis do not want to control the lives of Palestinians and they do not want to hold their military regime that occupies a civilian population in the West Bank. They also don't want to be threatened by Palestinians and they're afraid of withdrawal from the West Bank would put Israelis in a position where they're threatened by Palestinians. So I would say this double catch where we don't want to control Palestinians and don't want to be threatened by them. We love Judaism but don't want to be controlled by Judaism. This is where most Israelis agree, but what we have is the problem is these are two like tensions or paradoxes. And I felt like, you know, that my role is to turn that tension into words, into a worldview, into something that verbalizes the intuition of most Israelis so they can realize that we actually are not as polarized as our politics suggests.
0: Well, thanks so much for listening to our show, and special thanks to Micha Goodman for this wonderful conversation. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Coleman and Alex Bailey Dillon, and edited by Alex Bailey Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller. And music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find us, and you can also write to us at identitycrisis@shalomhartman.org. At You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Happy New Year. And thanks so much for listening.